Welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. A couple days ago, it was the 65th anniversary of the Brown v. Board of Ed decision that desegregated schools in the United States. You know, but here we are in 2019, and the promise of Brown has not been realized. In fact, we have we have hypersegregated schools in the U.S. that are as segregated as or more segregated than they were in the 1960s. In New Jersey, which is where I live, I believe we're the fourth or fifth most segregated state in the country, and those segregated living patterns show up in how our schools are segregated. In fact, there's a lawsuit against the state for maintaining such segregated schools. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that's true, not the least of which is starting in the 70s, the Supreme Court started to chip away at Brown. And segregated schools or not, Black and brown students face educational injustice on a daily basis. We can go anything from the opportunity gap or what I like to call the education debt, which is a good umbrella term, to things that are more specific like the school-to-prison pipeline. So on the occasion of the anniversary of Brown, I sat down with my friend Okaikor. We met at an event that was hosted by a teacher activist group that I co-founded back in around 2010, and we've been challenging injustices in education ever since. Like me, she's working on a dissertation that has to do with, you know, uh, justice issues in education. Specifically, she's looking at uh, black educators and what happens to black educators when they try to organize around some of these injustice issues. And a mutual friend of ours has nicknamed her the General. He trusts uh, Okaikor's political instincts and would uh, march behind her anywhere, I guess. We're going to do something a little different with this interview. We're going to do this episode in two parts. Part one that you're about to listen to covers Okaikor's experiences as a black student and her early experiences as a black teacher in a hypersegregated urban school. In part two, we'll talk a little bit more about her experiences as a black educator and a little bit more about her experiences as an activist, and a little bit about her dissertation that pertains to both of those. So here's part one of my interview with Okaikor. I hope you enjoy. Uh, stay tuned after the interview for some important information, including how you can donate to the cause through Patreon to keep this people's podcast going. Folks, we're back at BTTHHQ, a tiny apartment in Montclair, New Jersey, where my guest has graciously uh, crammed herself in with me and my two dogs <laughs> in this tiny one bedroom. Today's human is Awo Okaikor Ie Price. So we got the general on <laughs> the general uh, tonight. We'll. Uh, We'll get to that in in a second. So I'm I'm real happy that you were able to come here. But before we get started, tell me about your your uh, intro music. So I chose Cranes in the Sky 
um, by Solange Knowles. Um, I mostly, I think when I, when I, f- when I was first introduced to the song, the melody, the beat, the sound, her voice, it's just a beautiful song. Um, and then when you think about the words too, you know, I tried to drink it away. I tried to sleep it away. It's, you know, this state of, you know, of, you know, how do we deal with the challenges that we encounter um, in society? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what our responses to those challenges are. Um, and then how we come out on the other side, you know, um, just better people, you know, different, not better, but different. And do you identify with that process of I do. taking on challenges and coming out on the other side? Yeah, you know, uh, and for me, I think my my entire life has been just a series of, you know, and I think that's with everybody. You know, that's just what life is. Um, a series of challenges uh, that we encounter, how we deal with those challenges, um, how we sometimes reject them, right? As, But then also the importance of understanding that it's part of the process of just life and how we become more human, how we become more you know, whole. So we're always in that process of becoming whole. So we mm. never reach this place of entirety, mm. this place of wholeness. It's a continuous process that mm-hmm. we're always mm-hmm. in. So, so yeah, that's, you know, I, so yeah, I've def- I definitely, you know, relate with that. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about um, some of those, uh, some of those challenges. We met in the, uh, much loved but short-lived NJ Tag days. Yeah. And um, we were holding what was supposed to be our first annual <laughs> mm-hmm. little mini conference thing and ended up just being the only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's where I met you and, and Dina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what's Okaikor like leading up to that? Let's go back to maybe toward the beginning a little bit. What's mm-hmm. Okaikor like growing up and stuff? So Okaikor was little black girl who grew up in Newark. Um, so I was, I was spent the first nine years of my life in Newark. Um, my, uh, my parents married and then divorced and then married each other again. And so when they married each other again, we moved to Maplewood. Um, but my formative years were, were in Newark, um, just kind of hanging out. Norfolk Street is where I lived. My dad lived in Vincent Court, which is like around the corner from Hawkins Street School. So now, like, I, you know, I have students that I visit and observe, and I love to go drive around to the projects where, like, oh, I remember riding my bike around this area. So, you know, um, and then my grandmother, who lived in Georgia King Village. So I spent a lot of my time in those places and spaces. Um, and then, um, you know, when my mother married my dad again, they made the decision to leave Newark. And, and moved to to Maplewood, um, and that was you know, I for me that was you know I I was nine years old, but then I didn't I didn't think it made sense for my mother to marry my dad again. <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, why are y'all marrying each other again? Y'all don't get along, great. Right? It was like that was my like, why would you marry somebody you don't get along with? Um, but then thinking back, like I have this conversation with my sister quite a bit. My mom, who you know. 
um, just made so much less. And I, and she used to always say, oh, well, I'm doing it for you. I'm like, why? Like, make no sense. Y'all unhappy. But my mom made so much less than my dad. Um, and you know, which is kind of in many ways, kind of ironic. My dad's a new American immigrant. Um, but also had like more access to like education more than my mother who was African-American who had generations and generations of family who were born here, lived here, but did not have the access that my dad had who came as a new American, um, or an immigrant. And so, um, you know, so that just for me that it was just clear in the way that the way that anti-blackness against enslaved Africans and formerly enslaved Af the descendants of informally enslaved Africans, how that kind of manifests, right, and plays out, um, and and it being right in my family and seeing mm -hmm. it, right. Um, so yeah, um, and I think she just, you know, she tried her best. My, my, I mean, she would, I, she would tell stories of having, you know, used her welfare check to pay for us our Catholic school education. Uh, I went to St. Rocco's for kindergarten and then I went to first grade through third grade um at St. Mary's which is like right it's connected to St. Benedict's um and that was I mean I mean most of all at St. Rockles all of the teachers were teachers of color except for the principal who was a white man um gay white man um and then and then at St. Mary's the nuns were white and then I think I had one Filipina um, teacher for third grade. And then after that, not ever having a black teacher until I went to Ghana, right? And so that was like, you know, that process for, you know, and I remember there was one black teacher in the school and me wanting to be in her class. It was like, oh, I wish I could have been in her class, right? But it was interesting at that age that I was like kind of aware that maybe this teacher was probably going to love me better, mm -hmm, love me mm -hmm. more, or treat me better. Um, but not having the language to articulate that, right? That, you know, that my experiences with white teachers were going to be, was going to be kind of oppressive or not be able to see my full self um, and not, and not that they would be intend to mean harm, right? Because intentions has nothing to do with anything, but just. You know, if you're not, if you haven't done any introspective work, then you, for yourself as teachers, as educators, if you're particularly if you're white and you're going into schools where they're predominantly brown and black folks, or you're teaching a multi-ethno-racial group of students, you need to do some introspective work and in seeing how how my experiences, like my my fourth grade teacher was a white woman, older white woman who went to Okinawa. That was where she went to school. Like, so she came from wealth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know, and that's you know. So, and wasn't very kind, like she was kind, she was nice, very stern, but I remember her always like, you know, comparing me to my brother or my brother to me. And, you know, at this point I didn't realize that, that they were targeting my brother. I wasn't fully aware that this is what was happening. And so it was like any little thing he did, it was like, oh, he's being naughty. Oh, he's being, he's out of control. Oh, he's, you know, doesn't know how to behave or he's, you know, um, and, and why can't your brother be more like you? And my mom had at that point, cause I would go home into my mom and let her know like what was happening in school. And she would say, well, you let those teachers know that 
you're, you're, you and your brother are two different people. And that would, she'd coach me. And I'll go back. I'm like, me and my brother are two different people. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So when we moved to Maplewood, that was the experience. It was really difficult because um, I remember just fighting to be seen, fighting to um, also gain access to the type of, like, they didn't have levels at the elementary level at the elementary grades. However, they did level in terms of like, you know, they'll give another student more um, more advanced math, more advanced, you know, um, reading or whatever. And I was an avid reader and my dad was a mathematician. My dad's a statistician, he worked, at pharma- he worked for a pharmaceutical company. So he was always like, like I was always on top of everything. But I remember this teacher like never ever allowing me to like even try the more difficult work. Like saying, oh, you're not, it's not, you're not ready or, you know, that's not for you, right? Um, and the, looking back at that moment, looking back at that time, now I know that that's a pattern in the, in the district, right? There's a pattern of black and brown kids not being allowed to access opportunities. This is really what you're doing is you're cutting off opportunities for students um, to build on their skills, build on their ability, increase their ability right? Because intelligence is not fixed. It's something that, you know, we develop into, right? And and part of that means that we need to also be working with people from different levels at different, you know, abilities and grappling with problems together and working through those problems together, um, supporting each other through it so that we can all come out on the other side. But at the time it was like, okay, you know, she keeps telling, telling me I can't do it I wasn't internalizing that I couldn't do it. It's just like, well, she's just not being fair. Right? That's how I interpret it. Like, she's just not being fair. And I would tell my parents, you know, but they, at this point, I didn't realize a lot of the attention was on my brother because my brother was really, really being targeted at that point in the school. And my parents ended up having to, um, having to get a lawyer because the district had, um, were trying to force them to classify my brother. They would call, he's being naughty, he's not sitting still, um, he can't concentrate, things like that. And my parents refused. They said, you know, he's fine. He doesn't have a learning disability at all. My parents end up having to get a lawyer. Um, they end up fighting it. Um, the state got involved and said, yep, someone from the state came and testified in the hearing for, that they had. Um, and told them the district that they couldn't force parents to classify their children, and that the district was wrong. Um, but my parents were afraid to keep my brother in the school district. I would imagine, yeah. Right. So it was like, okay, what do we do? So my dad, being from Ghana, was like, okay, we're gonna send him to Ghana because we feel like he's gonna be targeted here. Um, let's send him to Ghana. And originally, it was just going to be him going by himself. Um, at this point, my brother was 10 years old. It was just going to be him going by himself to stay with a cousin, my dad's, one of my dad's cousins. And he was going to send her money monthly. They had actually fixed up the house. They fixed up a room. And then my grandmother, my mother's mother, one day pulled me aside and said, you know, originally we were just going to let him go by himself. But because y'all are so close in age, would you mind accompanying him? Accompanying him. And I said, oh sure you know I'm 11 I don't really know the consequences of leaving your family <laughs> I mean you don't think that far ahead like okay I'm just gonna be in Ghana in another country I don't didn't think that that would 
like separation from my family and what how that would impact myself even now still like how it impacts me um and then um my my parents you know my sister who i have an older sister who's five years old that she stayed so my brother and i went but there were there were several different things that happened during that time too there was even i remember in fifth grade so this at this point we are sure that we're going to go to ghana in fifth um, for the most part i think no this is earlier the school year so my teacher so while i'm working with my friend when i work with my friends i'm i'm speaking the way i speak out in the street like i use i'm going to use african-american vernacular i'm gonna you know so he wanted to, he wanted, he wanted me to go to speech class and i remember like telling my mom i was like mom as like, the teacher's recommending me for speech she's like what she's like that's why i told her not to be speaking because they're gonna think you're ignorant and i was like <laughs> like what so i remember the speech teacher coming to get me to test me right and turning on and then when she sat me down and she asked me to do all the different things and i turned on and i turned on my school english like to the nth degree it was like everything was you know i said it the way they were supposed to be said and she looked at me she was like i don't know why your teacher would recommend you for speech and i just smiled and like "Mm, yeah I'm multilingual, you know, like I can speak multiple languages. <laughs> I can speak the school English and I can speak, you know, you know, the English that I speak with my friends, you know. Yeah. So, so we went to Ghana and, and then uh, we ended up staying with, um, although my dad had made arrangements to stay with his cousin, we ended up staying with my uncle and his, and my aunt, um, my, my uncle also having married African-American woman. Um, and so it was, we were able to still maintain both of our, our cultures at the same time. Like mm-hmm. still, you know, we would hang out at the Du Bois Center, Du Bois' old home as part of the African-American Association, right? So it was a way for me to get, keep that part of who I was, but then also be very Ghanaian. Like, so, you know, um, but that was, that was an interesting time, mm-hmm. you know. And how long did you spend there? We were there for three years. I mean, like, oh, so three years away from our parents. My sisters, I mean, not to be so depressed, but my sister was like, there were times when my mom couldn't even get out of bed, right? That she had to literally send her children away to a whole nother country to get away from BS that was happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes me think about, you know, mm-hmm. Like even for my own children, like how, like how do you, you know, there's no escape. But then there's also a level of access too that we were able to get, like, get, like you know, that we wouldn't have been able to have. Like how many kids have to stay here? Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Right, don't know? have it yeah. even, like mm-hmm. can't say I'm going to go to Ghana or I'm going to go. Like they have to stay. Like they have no other choice to survive this hellhole, you know? Um, so I, I do think about that and I think that's, that has, that has been probably one of the biggest reasons why I do the work that I do. Like people, some, a lot of people don't have a choice to be like, I'm just going to get up and go. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a, that's, that's a level of, and I don't know if the word privilege is, I don't think it's privilege because that's not definitely, I, I mean, to have to leave your family in the only country, you know, you know, my grandmother, my mom, you know, but yeah. I mean, yeah. While we were there, I mean, I think we made friends and then we were able to, I mean, it was just a, I, I, I appreciate it in the sense that I got to also learn and know a little bit more about who I was 
as an African, as a, you know. So that wasn't something that I was getting here at all. Right. Mm. <laughs> at all. Um, but living there and living with the people, my people, and picking up some of the language, right? So, um, you know, that was... So I often tell people, like, my brother and I are more Ghanaian than my sister. Like, we really do feel like we're Ghanaians, mm, you know? Yeah. I don't think my sister has that affinity to Ghana like we do. Um, like, my children all have Ghanaian names. My sister's children do not. Mm. Um, you know, so, but my brother's children do, <laughs> you know? Mm. So, but that's, that was um, the education system, too. Like, it was really interesting that the... I, I think middle school was a really interesting time to go to because at that age, I think you're so lighthearted. You're also so, like, everything is so extreme to you, too, as well. Like, they're extremes. Like, you're extremely enjoying it or you're extremely, like, pissed off at everybody and everything's wrong. And, um, but, yeah, um, I mean, we went, we went, it was a privileged school, too, as well. So, I mean, we had, you know. My aunt was a librarian at the American school, which when I look at the tuition now, I'm like, that's like Okno. Yeah. So <laughs> um, what what were the sort of major differences you think in the in that educational experience that you had there? Mm, you know? I mean, so there was a lot of, and I was reading this, I was reading this this book um, by a Ghanaian author's name is Ayikwe Arma. And he kind of talks about the colonized schools in Ghana and how they were how they were created, um, and and even the pedagogy, right? So, and why it was done that way, right? Um, but it really was a lot of rote memorization. It was, you know, also did follow the British um, structure of schooling. Mm. Um, however, we did get, like I did, one of the languages that I, I you know, had to learn was my dad's language that was taught. Um, that's actually how, that's, like, I can read words, may not know what the word is all the time, but I can read words in my dad's language because I had gotten that. That was something they tried to at least make sure they held to. I don't know if they're doing that now. I know that there's been a lot of work or work around trying to maintain the languages because mm-hmm. they're finding that children are coming into the school only speaking English because right? mm-hmm. parents are afraid that they're not going to do well or being told that English is more valuable than your native tongue. So a lot of kids are losing their languages because parents are at the very beginning are only speaking English to them, you know. Um, Right? And this is in Africa, right? Right? You know? (laughs) That's some wild shit, right? Can I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just said motherfucker, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're good. Right in your own lang- in your own country, like um, like you really don't tell me that my language, and they've intern and how some people have internalized that, yeah. right? But then there's also this counter, you know, movement around. No, let's maintain our languages. Let's keep it. Right, we're losing part of who we are, um, and so colonized schools were designed to do that. They were designed to make you lose who, you- kill the African, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, but I would say like, you know, so I, I mean, but, but, I mean, besides that, I mean, I've got, we, we had some really great 
teachers. They were amazing. Um, I mean, I learned how to garden. I learned like I learned how agriculture. That was what I took. Took agriculture. We create our own, you know, garden bed. And I mean, science. We had science. I had English. I mean, I read so many books. There were so many things that I had been exposed to that. Um, and I appreciate it. There was a lot of competition too. That's the other thing. Is a lot of competition. Um, to be like first in class and yep. that sort of thing? Okay. I mean, like, it would be displayed. Like, everybody knew who was first, second, and third. Like, that was like, you know. I mean, Ghana will even post your, in, in your, in the newspaper. Like, you get posted, like, who passed what, what, um, what test, whether you, you passed it, what school you're going to go to. Like, so it's that, like, mm. intense. <laughs> yeah, that is intense. <laughs> you know? Um, not at that age, but when you get into the secondary school yeah. level. So I was in JSS, um, junior secondary school. And um, so you, you come back to Maplewood then? Yeah. So then, um, so at the end of middle school, like right before, I would say probably right before we were going to end, um, I, we were given the decision if we wanted to stay longer or if we wanted to come back home. And it was really a tough decision, I would say for me. Mm-hmm. Because I had friends I developed relationships with in Ghana at that point. Um, it was just a level of freedom, just relaxed. It wasn't, I w- wasn't as fast-paced. It was just a really... But I was away from my parents. I think that was sure. probably like the... And my brother was actually going to stay. Like it was up to the very last. We're about to board the airplane. We're going to get on the plane. Or like a couple of days before... Um, they were supposed to, we were supposed to board the plane. My brother was gonna made the decision to stay, and then right before, like I think a couple of days before we were gonna take off, my brother changed his mind and said he wanted to come back home. Um, and then my sister said, tells the story that my grandmother was pushed my mom, I guess, to ask us, "Hey, I think it's time for you to come home," because my 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 grandmother's like, "Those kids have been gone for three years; they're not gonna be your children anymore." Hmm. Yeah. You know. And this was uh, your mom's mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother's mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, she was amazing. B. Agnolia Holland. Um, so, yeah. So we, we came back. Um, I... <laughs> sorry. Should I tell this story? So, yeah, I'll tell the story. So my, my dad was like, um, so, okay, you're going to go to Columbia. So I so I'm finishing JSS two. So that's pretty much equivalent to eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, was it JSS three? Yeah. Um, and so he says, "Do you want to go to ninth grade or you want to go to tenth grade?" I was like, "Just put me in tenth grade." Went to Columbia. We <laughs> went to Columbia. Gave them my transcripts. They tested me, and they put me in tenth um, grade. I was in. T- <laughs> oh, so I. Skip ninth grade. Like, okay. I didn't even, I never, like, I went, for, my dad said, where do you want to go? And my dad went to the school and said, here are her transcripts, and she belongs in 10th grade. That's pretty much how mm-hmm. it went. <laughs> nice. <laughs> go for it. Why not, right? I, like, but who would think to do that? Right? And, yeah, I don't, yeah, who would think to just do that? I would laugh at it every time. I'm like, I can't believe you did that. And we actually were like, yeah, we're going to do it. You're going to be in 10th grade. And who's going to stop? Who's going to stop me? 
Right on. And and when your brother came back, he he went to Columbia so High he, School too. Nope. He, my oh. brother was so my brother's a year behind me. Okay. So he would have been going to eighth grade. Yep. Oh right. So, okay. But he went to a Christian school. So okay. the church that my dad that we went to, they had a school. Um, and I think they were trying to keep him from actually coming in, back into the district. So he went there, and then from there he went to St. Patrick's. I don't know if they're really known for basketball. Now they're like, it's not a Catholic school anymore. It's a, like a private school or mm. whatever. Where is that? In Elizabeth. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So he went there and then he went to St. Patrick's. So after um, being in Ghana and bringing all that back with you, um, coming back to Maplewood and to CHS, what's CHS like? Now that you've sort of had this, this this other world lives inside you, I guess, is one way to put it. Yeah, so so Columbia was, again, so now I'm going back to how, I mean, made friends, had friends. Um, I think what, I guess, sustained me there besides, like, was just, you know, friends. Your friendships, this, your social life. Um, but besides that, I, I mean, I don't know that. Like, it was a super enjoyable experience. Um, like, I mean, I, it was really interesting, you know. I I do remember my English. So, I think English. So, this is weird. I don't know how they, how they made the decision. So, I was, like, in honors or what they called level four at the time. Um, history, science, math. But then level three English. I'm like, well, how did you? How did I make that decision? I, I don't know. But I remember um, me and a friend of mine who's now a deputy superintendent. Someplace I'm not going to mention the name. Someplace <laughs> else right now. But I remember us being in the class together. Like, oh yeah, we're going to get out of this class because like we need to be in the honors class. And I mean, right now for me, like I hate levels completely. Like, sure. I hate the whole like. But I think for us at the time, we were 14, 15 years old trying to beat the system, trying to navigate around the system, trying to make sure that we had access to opportunities or whatever. And and we were like, we're going to get out of this. And so we asked the teacher. She was like, oh, you got to, you know, you got to work hard. So so we bust our butts the entire, I guess, year. And then the next semester, next year, we were in the honors class mm-hmm. for English. Um, so, but I'm just like, wow, like I had to literally just fight just to get access to an opportunity. Right. That was mm-hmm. like, here I am, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, I probably could have told my dad and been like, hey, dad, this is what I want. He probably could have written a letter. And I mean, I wasn't thinking any of that. Like, I didn't realize that my brother did a lot of that stuff. He was like, oh, dad, I want to be in this class. My dad write a letter. And then they put the counselor put him in. Mm. You know, that's not something that happens a lot, too, as well. Too. But, um, but yeah, that was I. I mean, I don't. Like, I, I don't, there was nothing really, like, super memorable. Sure. I do remember, um, like, so when I, the next year, my junior year, I got into, um, I was the, was in journalism, which was a level four. It was an honors um, English elective, but it was all year round. And I remember I was going to write a piece about how um, the TV production program, every year that they give out awards, even though they have black students who are, part of their program black students never get awards mm. right and it wasn't something that i was aware of like it was like i wasn't aware of because people came to me and told me right that's how i knew about it like some of the students in the program and 
it was, I can't remember the teacher's name. But anyway, one of my friends had, um, he had actually created a TV show and um, did not get a, wasn't in line to get an award for um, this show that he had created. And other students felt, even white students felt some kind of way about that. They were mm. like, yo, I mean, and it's clear. And they were like, and the teacher, we know that the teacher has been discriminating against black students, right? And it was going to myself and um, another friend of mine, Marissa, we were both working as a team. We were going to write this article. Um, and the teacher must have caught wind that I was going to write this article. Went to my teacher, went to my teacher, yep. And proceeded to tell her that the only reason why I'm writing this article, right, because I hate white people, and and the reason why I hate white people is because my ex-boyfriend is dating a white girl. I was like, that doesn't even make no freaking sense. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't, that, how does that, and she came to me with that. Like, she actually came this to me. This is an adult. This is an adult. A professional. A professional. <laughs> Doing this shit. Okay. Okay. Came to me with that. And Marissa and I were like, like, what the hell is happening here? Marissa's Filipina. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's not the reason why I'm, I'm writing this because I didn't even know anything about this. Like, I'm writing this because the students in your program, who a lot of them want to be anonymous because they're afraid of you, right? Um, and Marissa was like, okay, what if I were to just write the piece? Like, you both write it, but it just goes under my name. I'm like, what the hell is that? No, like... <laughs> I was like, screw it. I actually did not end up writing it. We actually didn't. And it's probably one of my biggest regrets is not mm-hmm. writing that article mm-hmm. um, that should have been written mm-hmm. uh, about that. So it's, it seems to me like like, uh, like so many people, it, a lot of what your life has been is sort of like a case study in like race and education. Yeah. You know, right. And like the, the bullshit that people have to, to go through. So... What gets you attracted to being in education as a profession? So I, I, I mean, I, I knew I was going to be a teacher from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, from like kindergarten, I think I was, I would say, like I was like already saying I was going to be a teacher. When I went to Ghana, my cousins called me Chonla. Chonla means um, teacher. So if you see my Twitter handle, mm-hmm. which I haven't been on Twitter in years, right? Actually, not years, months. But my Twitter handle says Chonla. I will. Chonla is teacher. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was wondering that. I never yeah. asked. Mm-hmm. Chonla. Um, and so I knew, like, and then they were like, oh, you're going to be a teacher. You know, you're always teaching everything. Like, you think you know everything. That's what they would say jokingly. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I knew from the very beginning. And then plus, like, so my grandmother's, most of her siblings yeah, were all teachers in Newark. And one in particular actually ended up running for mayor. Um Harry Wheeler. Um, but, you know, so I would hear the stories of all the work that they had done. My grandmother's sister, Mary Wheeler, um, helped bring Head Start to the city of Newark. I mean, they did, they, I mean, they did a lot of, a lot of great work. Um, what's his name? Junius Williams has, in his book, he's written some things about what my uncle had done. So I knew, like, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a, I'm gonna be a teacher. I'm going to work in Newark. Because I thought that that's where I was going to work. Mm-hmm. Ended up just working in Jersey City, starting my teacher, my mm-hmm. profession in Jersey City. But I knew from the beginning. I have all these. My dad, before he left Ghana, was going to um, teachers, the teacher college training school in Ghana. 
and then he, they got kicked out. He and my uncle and the friends got kicked out because they refused to take a test. So they got they protested against it, and you know they got kicked down. They ended up going to England. So like so, being a teacher was you know that was something that I think I always knew, and I, so I would say so. I didn't go right into teaching immediately. So my in my junior year of college, uh, I'm taking my my education courses. My mom passes away, um, and so I took some time off. I mean, I took a couple of courses, but I wasn't like taking. I was like taking photography and Hebrew lit and English trans, like something that was like easy going. And then the very next year, my grandmother passed away. So then I was like, okay, by the time it was time for me to be done with school, like I had done all my credits, I didn't do, I did my junior practicum, but I didn't do student teaching because I was just like, I just want to be done. I had all my, um, my content area, um, had all my content area um, credits, but I just wanted to be out, right? And so I finished um, and ended up having to go for alternate route. But I still, Took the after I was done with school, I took several months. I went to Ghana and spent some time there, yeah, and um, and then a bit more traveling because it was it was just so much that had happened back to back, and um, and and then one day one day my dad's friend who was a teacher in Jersey City was like, "Hey, Jersey City is hiring." Maybe you should apply. My my dad's like, well, maybe you should you should apply. And he says, and by the way, my insurance says that you'll be off the insurance soon. <laughs> 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 so I'm like, oh, maybe that's time for me to. That means it's time for me to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I applied, not thinking I was going to get hired, because I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I did. I was actually going to be hired to teach kindergarten first really? i had no idea yeah mm-hmm. yep and then ended up going to the high school um i did do um i did a long-term sub position in newark though teaching kindergarten and um pre-k mm-hmm. um but um but yeah and then started at snyder high school in jersey city mm-hmm. that was i love that place yeah so when i when i meet you it's around 2010 ish no, was it 2010? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Somewhere, maybe 11, maybe 11, but that, no later than that. And, um, you know, you're already, you know, a teacher hyphen activist, right? So how does that, is it just something that just naturally was like, well, of course I'm going to be, or was there some kind of... No, you know, I think process? that was like, of course I was going to be. Like, right. So I told you about my, my, my grandmother's, so I knew, I mean, you have these... The examples of teachers that I knew and had in my my family and my life were all teacher organizers yeah. and teacher activists. So that was like for me, it was like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. That, mm-hmm. was, that was what my construct of what a teacher was supposed to be. Sure. Um, you know, I I mean, I this other form of teaching, you know, you go there and you leave at three o'clock it was foreign to me. Um, seeing teachers do and work and do other things and and be organized with the community and, you know, um, working alongside them because our issues all tied together. That, that, that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that's what I saw. And that, that's the example that I had. I wouldn't say that I saw that in my teachers, my own teachers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I saw it in any of them. Let me think mm-hmm. about this. 
No. Mm-mm. Yeah. I don't think I saw in any of them. Yeah. But was... my family, that was a that was that was the example that I had. Okay. You know, so I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be. Now, whether or not I was like I would had had a fully clear lens on I don't think anybody ever does. Let me scratch that. Nobody has. I'm, I'm still like unclear on a lot of stuff. Like I think I'll be looking back at myself 10 years from now. I'm like, oh, why did she say that? What? Mm. You know? Um, but I, you know, I, yeah, at that point it was, I think it was probably more heightened because of what I was experiencing at the school I was in. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, no, it was so, yeah, it was just in terms of like the hyper focus on testing, the hyper focus on, um, the, you know, suspensions, right? The, you know, my students would be like, so they used to have this countdown that they would do in the school, like while the students were like transitioning to class. And if you didn't get to the class by a certain time, but I mean, you know, as a, as a clock is going winding down that transition time then the vice principal would do a countdown like 10 9 8 7 like that and then if at the one you're supposed to close the door the door is supposed to be locked the kids are supposed to be locked out so if they don't get to your classroom by that time right i wouldn't have half my class in the room if i had to do that but teachers would get written up like they would be watching on the the, i'm like this is crazy y'all surveilling us too but students would be like Yo, Miss Saeed, that's what they do in juvie. Right. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? Like, seriously? They're like, yeah, they do the countdown. You got to do the countdown, then you close the door. You know? Um, and so that's when I started, like, I'm like, wow, this is, this is like, this is not, this ain't right. Like, this is not how we should be living. You know, this is not how school is supposed to be. Like, it should, like, yeah. Why are you modeling your practices after a prison-like industry, mm. I um, actually it is prison, juvenile detention centers, um, and so I think that that was like what I was experiencing, what my students were experiencing. That's what started making me aware, and then, but also feeling deep in my heart that this ain't right, this wasn't right, even though there may not have been people talking about it. It was kind of normalized, mm-hmm. right? Police in the school, they had their own station, they had their own, you know, whatever. You know, teachers would get penalized if they didn't do all those terrible things to students, right? If you didn't write them up, if you didn't do this, if you didn't, I mean, it was just all craziness. Um, and so that, I think, just the, the harm that I was witnessing my students experience and then me also being forced to inflict more harm too mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so that for me was like, okay, this is where I need to make a decision on, um, am I f- going to be in work as an agent of the state or am I going to be an agent of liberation? Right. And that's how, and I don't know how I found y'all. Cause social media wasn't like yeah yeah we we barely i think we had like an email list and word of mouth and that sort of thing yeah i might have seen it through email list because there's so many listservs that yeah that I was a part of i don't know how I... and so dina was my um mentee okay and so and that was her first year 
And so part of my mentoring her was like, we're going to be activists. You're gonna, we're gonna, this is how we do an education. <laughs> Let's go to this thing together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And little did I know I was meeting the general. There, I don't, <laughs> Jacob came up with that. I yes. am not the general. Yes. Me. <laughs> so I remember uh, one time, a few years later, um, there was something, event or something like that, and I, I had messaged, I think, Jose about it. Mm. I was just about information about it. He's like, I don't know. Ask Okaiko. I was like, oh, I, I didn't know that she was involved in that. He told me, if it's going on in New Jersey, Okaiko knows about it. That's so not true. <laughs> There's so much I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's like cranes in the sky. So that was part one of my interview with Okaikor. Hope you're looking forward to hearing part two next week. Go to BrianTalksToHumans.net for more information. Once you're there, if you click on contact in the top of the page, you can find my social media, my email, and a button to connect you to Patreon where you can donate to the cause to help offset the cost of the podcast. That's it. Stay human. Because the streets are alive with the sound of boom, bop. Can I hear it once again? Boom, bop. Tell your neighbor, tell a friend, every box got a right to be booming. Because the streets are alive with the sound of boom, bop. Can I hear it once again? Boom, bop. Tell your neighbor, tell a friend, every flower got a right to be blooming. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the